forgot to mention a few moments ago that, uh, you know, I really do appreciate this. I received an email from uh, Brother Gary Albright and let me know that he has the flu and wouldn't be able to be here tonight. But he said, I just want to let you know why I wouldn't be in my pew this evening. I'm not feeling well. And so he's still recovering. You know, that's, that's a great thing to do, I think. Uh, let the preacher know what happened to you so he's not wondering whether he's got to come and see and all that kind of thing, you know, whether you're mad about something. I didn't think he was mad about anything, but uh, that's, I thought that was a nice gesture to send me an email about it. Well, let's open our Bibles now to Philippians chapter 4. And this evening we come to another one of those well-known uh, verses of Scripture. I mentioned uh, before, as we read through the book of Philippians, you find these little gems, these Scriptures that are sprinkled through just about every chapter and things that uh, you've heard many, many times before you're even able to quote. And the reason that they are so quotable is because they contain very sublime thoughts. Uh, Much of the time when you find a a verse of Scripture that you remember really easily, it comes at the beginning of a section where it introduces a thought. Sometimes it comes at the end of a section where it's a summary about things that have gone on before. And here in this particular place, this is a summary of things that Paul has said before this. The theme of Philippians, remember, is the life of joy and peace, as Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it. And we, we have a book here that explains to us how that we can really get through life in very tumultuous times. These people could see Paul's suffering. They had been through a lot of things themselves. There was a lot of trouble that was going on. And everything that was going on around them had all the ingredients to put them into a great depression. So Paul intends to explain to them why this happened. And he lets them know that there's nothing that they will go through that is not ultimately controlled by God. And for everything that happens to them, God will give them the grace to endure it. And there is a method to understanding such things. There's a way that we can know that that is really true, that we can get through these sorts of things. But it doesn't come to us until our thinking is changed. We have to have a change of mind. We've got to have a different way of looking at things. And so Paul is setting us up here for the proper perspective. And if we don't have the proper perspective, then we are going to be controlled by circumstances. And we've talked about this before, that often we can be up and down according to circumstances. And so we think that we're doing well and we have joy in our lives when circumstances are favorable to us. But Paul says that's not so necessary. And he takes this fourth chapter to point out some things that circumstances ought not to control us. And what he gives us here, though, in verse number 8, is really a cure for spiritual depression. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Just this one verse, Philippians 4, verse number 8. And again, I say it's a very familiar passage to you. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just... Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and what a great verse that we have before us tonight. Lord, we just pray that you might open this up to us so that we understand exactly what Paul means when he tells us to think on these things. Bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Think on these things. If there ever was a verse that has been misused, I think it's this verse. 
Paul says here in Philippians 4 verse number 8 to think on these things. And then he gives us a list of these different things that we are to think about. What Paul is doing here is not giving us a philosophy of life. And there are many people who do want to take this and they want to apply it as a philosophy of life. Some people will take it and apply it to the power of positive thinking. As if you could take everything that Paul has said before this and disjoin it, pull out this verse and say, well, here's the cure for everything. You just think in this way. Now, I'm going to explain in the second part of the message why that this is not a philosophical statement and why Paul is not here trying to use some kind of psychology to cure all of our ills. Now, before we have to, or before we can really understand this, we really do have to understand what God does with the mind. Of course, mind, our mind is what we think with. And Paul says to think on things, he means we're going to have to use our minds. And what we do need to understand is we can't think on these things unless our minds have been corrected, unless we have the proper perspective. Now, I want to look uh, first tonight at the values of the mind. And when I say mind or values of the mind, I don't mean the intrinsic value of the mind in relation to the body. I'm speaking here about the values that shape your mind. And again, I'm not pretending to give you a psychological view of things. There are people that are far more qualified to talk about that side than I am. I want to give you here a short theological, biblical view of the difference between the mind before salvation and after salvation. And the Bible does deal extensively with the mind. And it's very much different. What the Bible has to say about your mind before salvation is very much different than what it has to say about your mind afterwards. Now, what the Bible says about your mind before you receive Christ as Savior is not very good at all. In fact, you can speak to people and you can set them off and you can get them very upset and you can offend them by telling them what God really thinks of their thinking. Now, first... The Bible teaches us on this subject the chaos of a reprobate mind. Now, we can start with that. We start with a natural man because every person who is born into the world has a mind that is improper, it is immoral, and it is unrighteous. There is simply no such thing as a good, wholesome, well-adjusted, well-meaning, righteous person in God's eyes. Now, the Scripture teaches that we are depraved. If you look at Romans chapter 1, you'll find there a whole list of characteristics of the natural man. And Paul sums it up with this statement in Romans 1 verse number 28. He says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That doesn't mean that God created it in them, but what God did was to turn people loose to do what their minds intend to do. The Scriptures teach that man was darkened by the fall. And what follows in verse number 28 is another list of the types of depravity that flows out of a darkened, disgusting mind that will not submit to its Creator. And then further, the Scriptures tell us that we are blinded to the truth. Even with the truth out there, the truth is available to us, yet we don't have the ability to see that truth and to accept it. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't get it because our minds are simply incapable of handling God's truth. But the truth of the matter is, we really don't want the truth. We're happy to live in our depravity. We're happy to carry out these evil thoughts that are in our mind. We're happy to live in the corruption because we simply do not want to get out of it. We love it. 
We, we like it. We love it. That's the way that we want to live. And so those who preach the power of positive thinking are actually dealing with people who have essentially negative minds. And what they think is positive has actually been tainted by the mind's depravity. And so the best that you'll ever get out of that kind of theology, the power of positive thinking, is a temporary relief, and then you sink right back down to the very lowest levels again. Now, the whole point is that man is controlled by what is in his mind. We act according to our minds, and we're incapable of acting in any other way. We cannot act outside of what we are. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And when he's speaking of the heart, of course, he's talking essentially about the mind. And the mind is depraved. And so the only thing that can ever come out of a depraved mind or depraved heart are depraved actions. And so Paul's advice in verse number 8 could not be reduced to a philosophy of life that works for everybody. This is not something that you can take like a pill and just say, well, if you do these things, you'll live happily ever after. It doesn't work that way. And it's because the natural man is incapable of thinking on these things. Now, when Paul wrote these words, he was dealing with a world that was saturated with Greek philosophy. They, too, used words like virtue. And there are some people who think that what Paul was doing here is just throwing their words back at them or using their own words to describe the truth. Greek philosophy was always concerned with the mind. How do you deal with difficult issues? Well, they thought that what you had to do was you had to harness your mind. In the first several centuries of Christianity, uh, what one thing that really had to work, be worked at very hard, one of the biggest fights that the proponents of Christianity, those who were preaching the gospel of Christ, had to fight over was the issue of turning Christianity simply into another philosophy. So the Greeks were speaking about virtue. They also said that you need to think higher thoughts. And their idea was that you are to root out things like fear, for example, by thinking about good thoughts. And so if you just think good thoughts, then you don't have time to think about your fear. And you know, sadly, there are many Christians, there are preachers who approach this scripture in the very same way. You just replace your bad thoughts with good thoughts, and therefore your mind is filled with good thoughts. That becomes the filler, so there's no place there for the bad thoughts, and so that takes up all the room. And that is their approach to what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 8. Just avoid bad thoughts. But the scriptures in true Christianity do not preach this in that way, do not teach it in that way. Christianity is not concerned about avoiding bad thoughts and avoiding problems. Christianity is concerned about meeting problems head on and solving them, doing something with them. Now that brings me then to the comprehension of the renewed mind. The renewed mind is one that has embraced the gospel of Christ and has changed from this rule or dominance of the depraved man or inherent depravity. Now, when we speak of being born again, that's what we're talking about. It's about the renewal of the mind. It's not a renewal of the flesh. And Jesus had to explain that to Nicodemus. It's not that. It's a renewal of man's spirit, which is what controls all of his actions. So it's a reversal of all the characteristics that we read about there back in Romans chapter 1. It's a removal also of the blinders that have been put on man concerning spiritual things. Let me read to you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, another familiar scripture. Paul says here, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? 
Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The new birth is the renewing of the mind, so that the things of God are no longer foolish to us, but they are now understandable. Now there's a point of doctrine that, you ought to readily see when you see, read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The reason that regeneration must precede faith in the logical order is because the gospel will never make sense to the unregenerate mind. An unregenerate mind is totally incapable of processing the gospel. And that is a very essential part of our theology, and it's exactly why we reject decisional regeneration. Man cannot be regenerated by God simply offering him a choice to believe or not to believe because in the unregenerate state, he can't believe. He has a mind that's incapable of believing. He lost that ability. That was gone in the fall. And that's what we read, of course, in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And so when the preacher says to you, well, God has done everything that he can do for you. He's offered Christ for your sins, and now it's up to you. You need to make a decision, believe or not believe. And when a preacher says that to you, he's leaving you right where he found you. You see, God has to go beyond that in salvation. He has to secure the belief by illuminating your mind through regeneration. And that's why we say that God's grace is always effectual in work when it works in a sinner's heart. It's what we call irresistible, and that's what it's all about. God's work has to be effectual because without it, no man could ever believe. So I, I can't read 1 Corinthians 2.14 without bringing up that point of doctrine. It's what takes place in the renewing of the mind. That's what happens when God illuminates the mind through regeneration. He brings us to a place of comprehension of what the gospel actually is. Verse number 14 in 1 Corinthians 2 says that it is foolishness unto man at first, but when the Holy Spirit comes with illumination, then he has comprehension. Now, here then is what allows Philippians 4 verse 8 to have its effect. We can think rightly in a wrongly thinking world because our minds have been renewed. This is what Paul called the new man. He said in Colossians chapter 3, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now there we are getting down to the crux of the matter. We are renewed in our knowledge after the image of him that has created us. Now that brings us then to the second part of the message. And that is the virtues of Christ. Now here is another quotable verse that we find in Colossians. It says in Colossians 2 verses 2 and 3, "...that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love." And unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I said in this part of the message that I would tell you why that Philippians 4 verse 8 cannot be re reduced to a psychological proposition. Paul does not say, think on these things because these are simply good ideals. 
We don't think on these things as intangible, ethereal propositions. And you can do that if you want to think about grass and you want to think about trees and mountains and think about the blue sky. Some people do just that. They reduce what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse number 8, to things like this. Have you smelled a rose today? Have you ever watched a flower, when you plant it in the ground, break forth from the bud and spring into new life? And that's their whole idea of what Paul is saying. Think good thoughts, they say. You know, Al Franken used to have a spot on the old Saturday Night Live where he stared into a mirror and he said, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Think good thoughts. That's what they say. Just abstract ideas, nothing really tangible behind it. It's just a way of occupying your mind. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this statement in his commentary. He says, The New Testament never asks us to contemplate ideas. It always calls upon us to look at the person. Now, in that sentence that I just read to you, person is capitalized, and of course, he is referring to the person of Jesus Christ. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so when you look at Philippians 4, verse number 8, You're not looking at detached ideas. This is not a philosophy. It's not something wispy and ethereal. You're looking at the person who embodies all of these characteristics. Now, I think you can understand why that we say it can't be a philosophy for for the masses because Jesus is only real and understandable to those who have been renewed in their mind. We're speaking of people who have received the gospel of Christ. Salvation gives us the capability of thinking in a totally different way. Philosophers will take Jesus' words and they'll put them on par, right on the same level with Confucius and and with Plato and Socrates. They'll read him just like they read them. But if you truly know the person, the words that Jesus speaks are convicting and they are transforming. And nothing could be clearer on this point than our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And there you are confronted with the person. And he takes all of the ideas and he takes all of the opinions and all the philosophies of man and he stands all of that on its head. And we're confronted with true righteousness and statements that show us that we cannot be holy and righteous without the person. And that's Jesus Christ. So thinking the good thoughts of Philippians 4, 8 will have no effect on us unless they are attached to the person. So in other words, our thoughts have to be ruled by the gospel. Every action that we take is ruled by the gospel. And so when Paul says, think on these things, he's actually taking us to the very heart and core of the gospel, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Now you would expect then, in a sermon about Philippians 4, 8, that we would take all of the sayings and we break those down individually as to what these different sayings mean when Paul says, think on these things. And we are going to do that. But we're going to break them down in a different way than most people do. And that is, we're going to break them down as they apply to Jesus. These are statements, think on these things, are statements about Jesus. For instance, when it The Word of God tells us to think on things that are honest. Why do we do that? Well, we don't think on things that are honest because honesty is the best policy. And they say, well, think on things that are just. Well, why do we do that? Well, we don't think on things that are just because we believe in liberty and justice for all. 
That's a social activist approach, and that is a Greek philosophical approach. We think on these things, not for those reasons. Those reasons are substituted, sadly, by preachers, and they've been called the Christian approach. That's not why we think on these things. We think on them because they are characteristics of Christ. And so when Paul says, think on these things, what are we doing? We're thinking on Christ. And I hope you get this, because what we're doing is focusing on him. And what Paul is teaching us to teaching here is the summarization of what's come before. And what he's actually doing is taking us all the way back there into chapter 2 to that person. And what did that person do? He's the one who stepped off the throne of glory, became the servant of men, and died, on the, died the death of the cross. That's what Paul's doing in his summary. Taking us back, saying, think on these things, and these things are all characteristics of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a few minutes to look at these statements as they apply to Christ. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, think on these things. So what about Christ? Well, Christ is is the treasure of truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1, 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so when you think on truth, What you're thinking about is the gospel. And what is that? Christ died, he was buried, and he arose again. That's what Paul defines the gospel as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The way of salvation came by Christ. The remedy for the curse of sin came by Christ. The reversal of the depraved mind, it all came by Jesus Christ. And despite the relativism of a pluralistic society, there is, folks, only one truth. And it's found in none other than Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, think on truth, he means that we need to abandon all vain philosophies. Here's what Paul said to a young pastor. He said, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Science, as you should know, means knowledge. The gospel was committed to Timothy, and he was to avoid any knowledge that was in opposition to the gospel. And so when you hear all of these things out here, they claim to be truth. Measure it by one thing. How does it measure up against the gospel? And if it doesn't measure up well against the gospel, it's not truth, and we are to avoid it. Then he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are honest, think on these things. What does that mean? Well, in relation to Christ, it means that Christ is worthy of worship. The word honest is best described as honorable. Whatever is honorable, think on these things. And the things that are honorable are things that are worthy of our respect. And actually, the root word for honor in this verse is the word reverence. And reverence, what you reverence, are the things that you worship. And so to think on Christ is to worship him. And as we worship him, we think about him in the respect, or in things that are respectful, and we act accordingly to the way that we worship. Now what this is, actually, is an admonition to be serious-minded people. You know, it's often noted that Jesus was not a humorous person. There's no mention in the Scriptures even one time that Jesus laughed. Now that doesn't mean that he was sad. It just means that he was very serious about what he did. You know, sometimes I look at the advertisements that they put out for different churches, 
And you'll notice that a lot of times they'll say, well, come to our church because the sermons are culturally relevant and they are humorous. I don't think that I would judge anybody's sermon on the fact that it's humorous. I remember uh, there was a lady who used to come to church here and and, uh, one day I was meeting her, meeting with her in the office after the service and she said, I really like your messages because they are so humorous. And so from that point on, I stopped telling jokes because I didn't want my sermons to be to be uh, remembered because they're humorous. I want them to be remembered, if they are at all, because they speak the truth. I don't want to be known for humor. I want to be known for truth. Now, it turns out that that particular lady uh, left because one day I had to confront her with just too much truth, and the humor wasn't enough to keep her here. (laughs) See, it's very serious business that we do here. We honor Christ, and we worship him. I remember... My sister telling me about there was a guy in her church who also measured the sermons, but he measured them by the lack of humor. If you told a joke, then your sermon was no good. So he says, finally, brethren, next part, whatsoever things are just, think on these things. What does he mean here? Well, he means that Christ is the revelation of righteousness. Things that are just are things that are right, which means things that are righteous. And what is Jesus? He is true righteousness. Now again, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's the ultimate revelation of this very thing. What have we been dealing with there? Well, we're in chapter 5, and it's all about the characteristics of people that are in Christ's kingdom. His is a kingdom of righteousness. And the only way that you ever get into that kingdom is by the righteousness of Christ. And what the scribes and Pharisees had done was they had lowered all of the standards. And so if Paul is speaking here merely of a philosophical approach in Philippians 4 verse 8, then he would tell us, well, you need to go out there and you need to compare and look at things and think of things, think on these things, and what you would be thinking on are lowered standards because what you would be comparing to all the time is people that aren't living up to the standard of God. They're always living to a lowered standard. And so if you're trying to compare things that are just, you're always comparing it to the wrong thing, and you end up with hypocrisy. But when you think about Christ, and you think about the real standard, then you understand how unworthy that you are, and how you compare to that standard. And then you become very appreciative of what Christ has done for you. How he reached down and he saved you out of that horrible pit and mire of sin that you were in. He died to make you truly righteous. And he imputes that righteousness to you, which is your justification. Now, I think what Paul is saying here is that Christ gave up so much. And that was the teaching in chapter 2. That when we think about what Christ gave up and who Christ is, how could we help but our hearts to be elevated by that? Our hopes are raised By thinking on Christ. And so we think on things that are just. And when we do, our desire is to be righteous. Our desire is to do the acts of God. And principally, the acts of God are wrapped up in one central issue. And that is the word love. If we're going to be like Christ, we must love one another. Now remember, I said this is a summary statement. And what did he look at right back there in verse number 2 in chapter 4? He was dealing with strife and division in the church. Two people that couldn't get along with one another. And those types of things are eliminated by the righteousness of Christ. We can't be like him if we don't, if we don't uh, love like he loved. Then he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are pure, think on these things. And as we think about Christ, he is perfect in purity. A perfect purity sounds like a redundant term. 
But aren't we thinking of superlatives when we think of Christ's purity? Here he's speaking of his holiness. What do you suppose was one of the biggest hurdles that the Philippians had to get over? We don't really see so much of it in, here, in this letter, but what, what is the, one of the biggest things that was a problem for them living for Christ in their city? Well, there's not a lot of it here, but we do read about it in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians especially. They were living in a society that was very sexually charged. Corinth was one of the worst places in the world. It had a very, very bad reputation the world over for, for all different kinds of prostitution and homosexuality and sexual sins. It was the worst in the world. And the people in Philippi were not immune to that because that was part of pagan worship. The religious system said, you do these things. And the people in Philippi were pagans as well. And so they had fallen into the very same types of sins that the Corinthians were in. And so when Paul speaks of purity, he's calling them to the holiness of Christ. Now do you think if Paul was merely speaking here of a Greek view of philosophy that he could ever get this idea across? The Greeks were the very ones involved in it. The Romans were involved in it. You see, you have to think about the example of Christ and think thoughts of Christ. You must think about the person of Christ because the very best among them were sinners and they were still in sin. And the very fact that he speaks on these issues is because some of them had fallen back into their old sins. Notice what he says back in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So here we have a call to the chastity and the purity of Christ. Peter says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Then he goes on and he says, Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. Now, number five, as we think about Christ, the letter E on your listening sheet, he is amiable and adorable. The word lovely there is really kind of interesting because of all the words, of all the words that are spoken of Christ throughout the New Testament, this is the only time that the word lovely is used. The only time. And what the word means is amiable. It means pleasant and attractive. And amiable is a great word for Christ because he's a great companion. Proverbs says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Solomon wrote those words, and what he very well might have had in mind was the friendship between Jonathan and David. First Samuel tells us that their souls were knit together. And that means that they were inseparable. They loved one another. And doesn't that speak clearly of Christ? In Romans chapter 8, Paul mentions adversity after adversity. And then he comes down to some concluding statements there. And he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? I don't know if there's a more comforting statement in everything that we've read here than this one. Think about these things. No matter what they faced, even if death was knocking on the door, they knew that Christ would go through it with them. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's what God says. And the scripture says in Psalm 116 verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now why is that so? 
Well, it's because death brings us face to face into face-to-face contact with Christ. He is the object of our adoration, and we are the objects of his love. Isn't that something to think about? Philosophy never gets you to this point. You can, you can talk about philosophy all day long. It'll never have these kinds of appealing thoughts. It'll never have this kind of, 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 of usefulness to us, the things that will lift us up. It does nothing even for the greatest thinkers. A friend that sticks closer than a brother is a sublime thought, and that is great encouragement to people who are in trouble. How many of you have ever done this? Have you ever had a, a friend, and then you said, you know, I'm facing this particular issue. I don't know how I'm going to go through this, or I don't know how I'm going to do this. But if you'll go with me, I know I can do it. You ever done that before? It's good to have a friend, somebody that you can lean on. Companionship makes us feel better. And that may very well be what Paul is shooting at when he says, think on things that are lovely. Then he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. Concerning Christ, he is resplendent in his reputation. Three times at his trial, uh, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. There was nothing for which Christ could be accused. The only charges that were made against him were false charges by people that were paid to lie against him. Now, we read Peter's words a moment ago that there was no guile found in his mouth. Wherever he went, Christ's reputation preceded him. People didn't come out to hear him because he was a hateful man. They didn't show up because he always treated people with scorn. They came to hear Christ because they knew of his reputation. He was somebody who helped people. He healed people. Anybody who ever came in contact with him was changed because of that contact. He had a great reputation. He was known for those kinds of things. And he was also known for this. He was known for his brutal honesty. See, they could, they could never make an accusation stick against Christ because when they came and began to speak with him, he already knew what was in their hearts. He knew what they were up to. And you remember how they tried to trick him in that incident with the woman who was taken in adultery? They tried to trick him and they tried to get him to turn against either man's law or God's law. Didn't make any difference to them which one he would do, just so he would do one or the other. But Jesus would do neither. And that's because he was always stellar in his reputation. He had a good name. Whenever anybody honestly evaluated Christ, there was nothing they could say bad about him. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He's encouraging the Philippians to think on the very highest principles. And that's because Rome and everybody around them was always accusing Christians for everything that went wrong. They didn't worship the gods. They didn't worship the emperor. So when things went wrong in the Roman Empire, it's the Christians' fault. And so there was plenty that they'd be accused for. And so what Paul is telling them is you don't want to hand darts to your enemy to throw at you. They're going to be throwing them all the time. So don't give them ammunition. Keep a good reputation, because if you don't, all is lost in the cause of Christ. You can't fight against a bad reputation. And it's no less true today. I mean, we are continually handing over the nails by which people crucify us. Hypocrisy has turned many a co-worker, many a family member, many a friend away from the cause of Jesus Christ. You must have a good reputation. Then he finishes with, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. You keep thinking about Christ and you keep coming up with superlative after superlative to describe his character. And so you see here again that Paul cannot be speaking of 
detached thoughts. It's not philosophy. It's not abstract. Our thinking has to be grounded in the concrete realities of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Alexander McLaren wrote, Thinking on these things is not merely a meditating upon abstractions, but it's clutching and living in and with and by the living, loving Lord and Savior of us all. If Christ is in my thoughts, all good things are there. Let me finish with another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. If Spurgeon was the prince of preachers, and that's what he was called, I really do believe that Martin Lloyd-Jones must have been a prince of preachers for his time as Spurgeon was in his But he wrote this, he said, The gospel does not say, Now think beautiful thoughts and forget the others. The gospel comes to you and says, Are you as a Christian harboring thoughts like that? Did Christ die in order that you should go on thinking in that way and living in that way? Face yourself, says the gospel. Look at your own imperfections and then look into the face of Christ upon the cross and ask God to have mercy and compassion upon you. That is the Christian method, not science of thought. But looking at yourself in the light of Christ and what he has done for you. Bringing that sin, that foul, ugly sin immediately to him. Facing it yourself in his holy presence. And believing truly and absolutely and implicitly in his power. In view of all this, I would suggest to you that what Paul was saying to the Philippians was this. Your whole thinking and all your actions must be controlled by the gospel. I think that is a great summation of Paul's summation. Our thinking has to be changed. And only the gospel can give us the ability to think outside of what we are in our human nature. Only the gospel can cause us or enable us to think Christ-like thoughts. It's elevating. It's stimulating. Only the gospel gives us the power to turn away from a depraved heart to a devoted heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Again, McLaren said... You will not think on these fair forms and bring them into your hearts unless you turn away by resolute effort from their opposites. Well, friends, these kinds of thoughts will get you through the bad times and they'll make you feel so much better in the good times. And you know why? Because when you think these thoughts, you are thinking on none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. How could you think on anything better than that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that he can fill our thoughts and change our souls. He can make us different from what we were before. We thank you for the righteousness that we find in Christ. And Lord, as we go through difficulties and struggles and everything that goes on in our lives, everything that's happening around us, may we always keep Christ in our thoughts and think on these things. And we'll always be grateful no matter how bad things get, because we know that you're in control and you give the grace to go through every trial. Bless your people, Lord, and help us the rest of this week to think on these things, thinking on Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.